Welcome to the College Commons Podcast, passionate perspectives from Judaism's leading thinkers, brought to you by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, America's first Jewish institution of higher learning. My name is Joshua Holo, Dean of HUC's Jack H. Skirball Campus in Los Angeles, and your host. You're listening to a special episode recorded at the URJ Biennial in December of 2019. Welcome to this episode of the College Commons Podcast, where we will have the pleasure of uh, speaking with Rabbi Ariel Berger. Ariel Berger is the author of Witness, Lessons from Elie Wiesel's Classroom, which won the 2019 National Jewish Book Award in Biography. He is also an artist and teacher, integrating education, spirituality, and the arts. An Orthodox rabbi and Covenant Foundation grantee, Ariel develops cutting-edge arts and educational programming for adults, facilitates workshops for educators, and consults to nonprofits. He's currently working to establish the Witness Institute to train leaders in Elie Wiesel's approach to moral education. Ariel, Rabbi Berger, thank you for joining us on the Commons Podcast. Pleasure to be with you. I think most of us can imagine how powerful and inspiring it can be for a student to learn from the proverbial great man. I say proverbial because it could be a woman, but what are the ways that studying at the feet of a great master can actually impede the student? Mm, wonderful question. Well, the, the, the tension is always that a great teacher wants a student to become her or himself rather than imitate the teacher. So the question is, how do, how do we as educators empower the students to seek and find themselves, even in those places where they might disagree with us, where they might move in a direction that we haven't explored or that we don't feel fully comfortable with. In my relationship with Professor Wiesel, he was very, very clear always that he believed in me and that he trusted me to find my own voice. And he never gave me any cause to succumb to the temptation to imitate him. And so I, I was always very aware of that in moments when I asked him advice and I wanted an answer. And he didn't answer. Hmm. And this is true of great teachers. I mean, I think mediocre teachers want the students to be like them, and great teachers want students to be like themselves. themselves. And he really did that for me and for many other students. That answers the question on the positive. Was there, in fact, a, a, a way in which he could impede? Uh, not by virtue of personality necessarily, but by virtue of the category of his stature. Well, celebrity was a barrier I had to overcome at certain points, especially early on, before I really knew him well. I was mm. intimidated by it. I was a teenager. So I was aware sure. of that. I was intimidated by that. Um, I think he was doing everything he could to put me at ease from the very first meeting where he held his hand out and said his name as if I didn't know who he was uh, to the, the modesty and generosity with which he greeted me at the door when I came to see him. I think that I brought my own projections to him uh, at, along the way at various moments, and not only to him, but to other teachers and other, other great uh, personalities from our tradition. And one of the amazing things that I've experienced over and over again is there's like an inclination to worship a teacher. And again, the great teacher says, don't worship me. You have that in you, and it's between you and God, the infinite, whatever, whatever language we use for that. And so the teacher recalls 
you over and over again to that. And that was my experience of those moments when I was dipping into that temptation a little bit mm. and being swayed a little bit in, in one way or another. Um, I've had the repeated experience of those great teachers, and particularly Professor Wiesel, insisting that it's a detour. It's a dead end. It's not going to lead you to the kind of growth that you're imagining. The hardest thing for me was projecting onto myself and sort of imagining an ideal version of myself and then trying to force myself to become that. That was a big part of my journey that I, it took me a long time to let go of. When you describe yourself on your website and the like, you describe, among other things, your Jewish journey. And you write the following, quote, I questioned everything in search of an answer, but it wasn't until I met Professor Wiesel that I realized that questioning is the answer, close quote. I suppose that you know that in the liberal Jewish world, we don't merely celebrate, we actually sell Judaism to ourselves and to the world um, as quintessentially embodying the very notion that questioning is the answer. This is our currency. Why was it a revelation for you? Well, first, coming from an, a deeply orthodox background, at least as far as my schooling went, and elements of my family history, that's not always the assumption, and it's not taken for granted. We question the text. That's what we're trained to do from an early age, is to poke holes in the text and question assumptions and challenge um, any statement that we hear, but it's not necessarily applied to theology or questions of personal growth or finding one's path as a unique human being. And there's some degree of conformity in, in parts of that community or those communities where I spend time. I, I want to interrupt you and ask you, when you say some degree, the stereotype would be that to interpret your some degree as a, an understatement with respect to conformity. Is, are you, in fact, being polite? Oh. No, it depends where... I'm, I'm sort of trying to encapsulate the range of experiences that so I've had that, in, in orthodoxy okay. because there are a lot of places where, and sometimes in very surprising places, where conformity is just not really a, a present value or a force at all. First of all, we have all these assumptions and projections about one another and the yes. communities we're not a part of. Yes. And we, we, we know enough to know that usually they're wrong and that when we get close to people in those communities, whether we're talking about other denominations or other other religious communities or people in general, our projections and assumptions are often challenged in great ways. But that happened for me also. I grew up going to a, a black hat Orthodox day school where... Were you in a black hat home? No. My, my, growing up, my mother was modern Orthodox and still is. My father growing up was conservodox. Neither one of them was ultra-Orthodox by any stretch. Um, so that made for some interesting tension already at a young age and a pretty early exposure to some degree of pluralism. My, my, my grandfather on my mother's side was a very serious modern Orthodox scholar, lawyer by day and you know, scholar by night uh, and Shabbat afternoon and was all about learning and the rigor and discipline of learning and growth and learning. Um, and my my father's father was a conservative chazan who was just filled with a sense of beauty and humor. So, you know, there, there was a lot going on in my childhood, religiously, Jewishly, um, culturally, which was great, but also sometimes confusing. Later, I discovered that in places where I would imagine the most conformity to be, for example, in the 
one particular Hasidic community in Jerusalem where I spent a lot of time is the Breslover Hasidic community. I'm sure there's there are issues around conformity, but my experience, my personal experience there was that people were just really chill. You know, people would just really welcome you, come as you are, bring your questions. And partly that's a function of the teachings of Nachman. Of Rabbi Nachman, right? Which 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 are very, very deep and very open. And you know, related to what we were talking about earlier, when people came to Rabbi Nachman for advice, he wouldn't give advice. And he wanted his people to be autonomous. Mm. And so you don't think of autonomy in the Hasidic community, right, but in right. that in that sect at least, which is the, the group that I'm most connected to and the path that I am closest to in my life, there's a lot of nonconformity and there's a lot of a sense that the, the hardest questions are things that you need to figure out between yourself and God and your own heart. And, and you were exposed to this before your tutelage under Professor Wiesel or after? Both. It was along the way because I, I had you know, I had a lot of contact with Professor Wiesel from age 15 until my early 20s. I was in Israel for, for a long time and stayed in touch with him. And then after those years in Israel, I came back and became his teaching assistant. That's when we had the most intensive, regular time uh, with some formality around it because I was studying, I was doing a doctorate with him. And uh, from then until the end of his life, uh, close to the end of his life, we had more regular contact. But he was very much a presence in my life from much earlier on. So, for example, one of those years I was in Israel and I was studying in yeshiva. I met him in Jerusalem in the lobby of the King David Hotel. And I asked him a question that had been on my mind constantly for months, which was, can you create a religious identity based entirely on doubt? That was where I was living. Even though I came from an Orthodox background in part, I couldn't find a kind of bedrock philosophical, theological statement upon which to build the whole edifice. And that was the kind of thing we talked about where other teachers might have said, you know, doubt is dangerous, you have to hold on to faith um, in spite of your, your, your rational self or the questions that are coming up for you. You have to sacrifice your rational self on the altar of faith and religious life. He said, no, you have to, the best thing you can do is integrate faith and doubt. They're not opposites. If it's only doubt, then it's then it's pro- then it's dangerous. In other words, if it veers into cynicism, I think it's right. very dangerous. But if you have a relationship between faith and doubt, then the faith makes you safe from cynicism, and the doubt ensures that you don't fall into fanaticism. And if we approach these kinds of questions from a purely intellectual place, we will sometimes mistakenly believe that we have there's a contradiction between faith and doubt. So. You know, the world has given me a box called faith and another box called doubt, and I have to pick one. I'm a believer or I'm not. I'm religious or I'm secular. We have these categories, you know, here in North America, Israel, and, and around the world. And it ain't necessarily so. And for, for Elie Wiesel, it just wasn't the case that you had to make those kinds of false choices. I must, I must say, uh, in, in my world, Jewishly, uh, there is no... Uh, feeling painted into a box by that false dichotomy. Uh, the, the vast majority of the Jews uh, in the pews and the professors and rabbis with whom I deal all the time 
um, have long, long ago jettisoned any sense of being beholden to box A and box B, emotionally and intellectually. Yeah. That that um, that mix, mixture is um, entirely comfortable to them. Well, that's a, a wonderful thing. And, you know, William James talks about a first um, naivete and a second naivete. You know, you have you have certain beliefs that are then shattered and then you come to a sort of more sophisticated version of the same thing. So what was a challenge for me was that I was trying to arrive at the place you're describing without letting go of a sense of um, some place for submission and obedience and, uh, and even a sense of self-sacrifice um, and the sense that I'm beholden to and obligated to mitzvot, not just because I'm choosing from an autonomous place, um, but because there's some kind of um, there's some kind of burden that I bear, obligation that I bear, that raises me up. The yoke of the kingdom of heaven. Exactly. Before we return to the podcast, we want to let you know about digital learning on the College Commons platform. Beyond this podcast, which is available to the public at large, check out the online courses at collegecommons.huc.edu for in-depth learning, digital syllabi, assignments, inspiration for teaching, and one of our most influential courses called Making Prayer Real. Subscribe with your synagogue for all this and more. Just click sign up at collegecommons.huc.edu. Oh, and one more thing. Help us out and rate us on iTunes. But whatever you do, do not give us five stars, unless we deserve it. Now, back to our podcast. So that's the, that's the bigger challenge in, in my life was I could have made that move to say I'm no longer orthodox. I'm no longer halachically bound. And that would have resolved the question. I also could have said I'm only orthodox and only halachically bound. And anything that doesn't fit into that, I'm going to let go of. What I was trying to do was say I'm, I'm bound to halacha because I believe in that um, I believe in the divinity of halacha, and I believe in the power of that obligation to liberate me from myself. I see that as a spiritual path, and I also don't want to live it in a way that uh, betrays my sense of self or the reality or authenticity of who I am. You know, one of the best things to read about this in, in, in my experience is um, reading Leonard Cohen talking about sitting Zen meditation. Because for him, that was not a process of looking for any sort of liberation, mm. except the liberation from, uh, from the kind of freedom that was so burdensome and led him to depression and things like that. Right. Having that discipline of waking up at three in the morning and sitting zazen was liberating because it was the opposite of liberating. Right. So there's, there's a lot to say here. I also want to tell you that I, the first time I came to a biennial, I came home and I said to my wife, I think we should be reformed Jews. Um, and do everything the same way we're doing it now, right. not change right. our practice at all, but have the perspective of, in the language of the Talmud, um, great is the one who's not commanded and chooses to do it anyway. Right. Let's let go of that sense of obligation for a while and just see what it feels like to, to act and observe halakha and all of that from a place of love. Um, and recently I found a source in the Talmud, in the commentaries in the Talmud, that talks about how even though the Talmud says it's better to be commanded, it's greater to be commanded because then maybe you're overcoming the inner resistance and you're working for it. There's a, there is a commentator that said, I just found this like a month ago, 
There's a commentator who says, that's true in, in one dimension, but there's another dimension in which not being commanded is much is a greater sign of love. Right. So I think one of the things that we all deal with, whatever wherever our personal practice is, is how do we bridge the sense of uh, the positive aspects of being obligated and the power in that and the richness of that? Because we need some element of that, I think, if we're going to have continuity and transmission right. to and the I think generation. people who reject obligation, actually, if you drill down, you will find somewhere foci of obligation. Right, right. And Elie Wiesel often said, when communities profess denial of God, very often what they're doing is replacing God with something else. So the right. communists did that, and they replaced right. God with history, right. with a capital I'm H. I always tell so my on. students that negation is as much an affirmation as is affirmation. Right, right, right. It's the shul you don't go to, which is, you know, it's... Yeah. it's Right. So the God you don't worship, so which God are you worshiping? Right, right, exactly. And I'm not obligated to this, so what am I obligated to? Even if it's my own instincts or my own sense of myself. And and for me, it's really if we're looking for some kind of spiritual liberation, not just not just the kind of liberation that comes when you're able to sleep late, but the real kind. I mean, that's good too. But the real kind of spiritual liberation from from myself, from the parts of myself that don't allow me to experience full presence in the world, and full mindfulness in the world, and full joy it turns out that discipline and obligation are an ingredient of that. And the other ingredient that's really important is spontaneous mm -hmm. overflow of love. And, uh, and so how do you have both? That's one of the core questions, I think, in spiritual life today. Uh, a review of your book by Zlati Meir cites uh, Wiesel as saying, I believe in a wounded faith. Um, and the reason I wanted to pick up on this question is because to me it echoes uh, Nachman of Breslau's notion that in order for a heart to be full, it first has to be broken. And um, full meaning complete. Um, and now that I know you're connected with the breast lovers, I, I, I wonder if this, is, um, if this is explicitly part of your uh, connection to, to Wiesel. Very much so. He was very connected to Rabbi Nachman also. He had, he had a kind of love affair with Rabbi Nachman of Breslov as a storyteller. Mm, yeah, sure, sure. And he loved the biography of Rabbi Nachman also. There are all kinds of stories and adventures of his travels to Israel and uh, encounters with pirates and plague and all kinds of stories that sound like fiction, but really happened. Um, and the themes of madness and laughter and the limits of language appear in, yes. in Rabbi Nachman's yes. writings a lot. So we shared that. We shared that love. Um, and at a certain point, I started traveling to Uman for Rosh Hashanah, for the Breslover pilgrimage and gathering for the Jewish New Year. All, all Breslover Hasidim from around the world go to a little town in Ukraine where Rabbi Nachman of Breslov is buried. And that was a big part of my conversations with Professor Wiesel in those years, was about that journey. Mm. Um, and um, there was a certain point in my my development where I, I realized through the influence of Rabbi Nachman and Elie Wiesel and Leonard Cohen. Those, that was the trifecta. And Ursula Le Guin was a, in, in more of like a fictional kind of setting in her writings in, in the Earthsea series especially. Um, and she's drawing on Taoism primarily mm -hmm. in that series. I realized at a certain point that there's something really profound and central for me in terms of my spiritual makeup and who I am about encountering brokenness and being whole with the brokenness, brokenness of self, brokenness of the world. That became a really central theme um, 
And in my conversations with Professor Wiesel that showed up in places where I was struggling with things, and I was looking to him to kind of give me the perfect band-aid. And he never did. Instead, he just stayed with it and helped me to inquire into these places of brokenness as if I were talking to a good friend, without fear, without drama, just with the sense of listening. And that was kind of life-changing for me. And then I discovered, of course, in Rabbi Nachman's writings, and especially in his tales, that the theme of the beggar is very central. The person who is broken and doesn't have anything, and the way it's expressed in one text is, whatever you give him, he feels like entitled to half of it. And so whatever he has, he's astonished and grateful to have so much, to have double what he expects. And so he's always filled with joy, and so he's really wealthy because he always has more right. than he needs. Right. right. And that's a kind of, mo- and, and he's talking not just about physical wealth, but spiritual wealth. I think one of the challenges we face, one of the things we have to work on is we don't value with enough awe and reverence and joy the little things that we are somehow given to do. The fact that we're alive, the fact that we're able to pray without any in kavana whatsoever, without any intention whatsoever, but we're showing up. Just the fact that we're showing up. The fact that we can have encounters like this, conversations like this. Right? There's great joy and really there's astonishment in that. So that's a feeling that we have to cultivate. It's not always natural for us because we're, we get desensitized, we take things for granted. But I think that's very much at the center of Jewish life. It's why we start the day with a thank you. Um, a thank you prayer, which is also kind of an admission, because the words yeah, in Hebrew right. are the that's same. Right. Acknowledge, right? right? I yeah. recognize. Yes, I, I, and I'm acknowledging in spite of the whatever resistance I have to acknowledging. Yeah, that you know that I'm not in control of everything, and that I I can't take these things for granted. That I have another day, and in in, a, in the theological language of that prayer, we're saying God believes in me enough to give me another day to be here to do good work. That's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. Those kinds of those kinds of feelings have become more and more central for me as a, just as a person. Just you know, to not only get through tough times, but to over time feel like I'm really ascending a ladder of some sort. That there's a direction, there's a purpose, and um, more than anything else, when I read my life as if it's a page of Talmud, as if it's a sacred text, I look for the patterns. I apply those kinds of methods of reading to my life. Um, this is one of the things that stands out as a repeating, recurring motif. That um, there's no use in pretending or professing things that we haven't really earned, that we haven't really integrated into ourselves, and that it's okay to be broken, it's okay to be struggling, uh, that we're way too hard on ourselves, that acceptance and self-acceptance is the beginning of growth, um, and so I've been drawn more and more to those kinds of sources and texts in our tradition and elsewhere that that sh- that really w- unpack that and show kind of specific practical ways of of working with that. Well, on that note, then let me uh, thank you for taking the time and uh, the pleasure of your company. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. Me too. You've been listening to the College Commons podcast, produced and edited by Jennifer Howd. 
and brought to you by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. For this URJ Biennial series, special thanks to Mark Palavin, the URJ Chief Program Officer and Biennial Director, and Liz Grumbacher, Director of North American Events. We hope you've enjoyed this episode, and please join us again at collegecommons.huc.edu.